Hi there, folks. My name is Emily, and you are listening to E Pluribus Unum, a podcast where I discuss politics, religion, culture, etc., all for the hopes of trying to bring us together and make us more united. That's what E Pluribus Unum means, right? Out of many, one. The hope is that as I talk to you, as we think about these different topics together, we all find the things that unite us. And also recognize that sometimes we're not united on everything and we have different opinions, but nonetheless, we can come together and be one, right? E pluribus unum was never intended that everyone should neglect and forget where they came from and their own cultures and opinions, but that despite how we may dress or eat or what holidays we may celebrate, we can find uniting principles and become one united people. So, you know, very easy task to accomplish, small, minor, little thing, no big deal. I hope everyone had a very enjoyable and meaningful Christmas last week. It was interesting. I'm sure Christmas coincides with Shabbat every several years, but it was interesting that Friday night when Jews around the world were settling down for Shabbat dinners. Christians around the world were settling down for Christmas Eve dinners. Or is Christmas dinner more of a thing? Not so much Christmas Eve. I'm sure families were all together Christmas Eve, whether or not you were having a dinner together. And then, of course, Saturday was Shabbos, so Jews were headed to synagogue and Christians were headed to church. And it's cool that there was that overlap last week. I'm going to get into this week's Parsha, this week's Torah portion, which I have neglected to do for a while, and I apologize, but we're getting back into it because the Torah, the Bible, that's where all of wisdom exists, pretty much. And that's the only place we need to look when we have questions, when we're not sure about things in the world or how to live our lives, the answers are already there for us. We don't need to figure it out on our own. It's it's there, which is nice, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel each time we come up with a moral conundrum. But I do have one other thing I want to talk about, which I actually think will lead into this week's Parsha. You might have noticed this if you are on the email list for any sort of Jewish organization. If you're not, you might have seen a similar type comment. I would imagine that religious and lay leaders of various communities make similar comments, but I've noticed a lot in the Jewish community, and that is when there is some sort of anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, I should say, some sort of anti-Jewish attack or anti-Jewish demonstration, then the leaders of the Jewish community, whether it's rabbis or heads of different Jewish organizations, they write emails to their congregation and to the community, letting them know what's going on, you know, has law enforcement been involved, that we're going to stand strong, that we're United Jewish people, stuff like that. It's mostly encouraging, right? They're letting the people know that we're not going to stand for this sort of anti-Jewish bigotry and, you know, the community's with us. But somewhere in the email, there's always a line, we at Temple Beth Shalom condemn bigotry and hatred of all forms. Or we at the Anti-Defamation League condemn all forms of hatred and bigotry. And it really doesn't matter what 
organization it's from, they all make some sort of comment like that, that they condemn bigotry and hatred of all forms. I think most of us condemn bigotry and hatred of all, or at least most forms. I don't know. I, I'm pretty bigoted against pedophiles and rapists, and I, so I'm not really against all bigotry and hatred. But when we generally think of bigotry and hatred against people of different religions, of different cultures, of different races, ages, whatever it is, I think we're all pretty much on the same page about that. But it really bothers me when there's an anti-Jewish attack that a Jewish leader feels it's necessary to comment on other bigotry and hatred. It would sort of be like if a kid comes home from school crying to their parents saying, Billy bullied me at school. And the parent looks at the kid and says, I'm so sorry, I'll talk to the principal about it. You know, I'm against bullying of all kinds. Anytime a kid is bullied, I stand against it. Well, that's nice, mom, but I'm talking about me. I was bullied today by Billy. I don't really care that you are standing against bigotry. What are you, this is about me. And I think it's okay to be about me because I was the one bullied by Billy today. And I think it's the same thing when there are anti-Jewish attacks or anti-Jewish demonstrations. It is good when the Jewish community partners with other groups or when other groups want to partner with Jews because for many, many years and in many different places, as we know, Jews did not have partners in the community who would stand up with them when they were being targeted. So it is good to know that we have partners in the community and it is right for us to stand with other people who are experiencing true bigotry and true hatred. But when Jews are attacked, whether it's neo-Nazis marching with signs or people painting swastikas on a day school, whatever the instance is, that is a specifically Jewish attack. And it's not about bigotry against the LGBTQ community or hatred against blacks or whatever other thing we might stand against. It is an anti-Jewish attack and it is okay as a rabbi especially, but any leader of a Jewish organization to say we stand against anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish hatred, period, end of story. Why do we need to include all this other bigotry? It's about us. And to be frank, anti-Jewish hatred is distinct from other hatred and other bigotry and the fact that it happens everywhere over all of history in all places with every group of people we have experienced it at some point many groups have experienced it in multiple places but anti-jewish hatred is unique and it's okay as jews to comment on that fact and to focus on it when there is a specifically anti-jewish attack the reasons why anti-jewish hatred is unique are many and varied and is not the topic of this podcast episode, though I do highly recommend Dennis Prager and Joseph Teleshkin's book, Why the Jews, as a very good introduction to what is distinct about anti-Jewish hatred. But one of the unique facets of anti-Jewish bigotry is the fact that it is that it has existed in almost every place in all times. Just a few days ago, December 25th, marks the date in 1369 
that King Frederick III of Sicily ordered all Jews to wear a badge indicating their heritage. The badge consisted of a piece of red material, not smaller than the largest royal seal, men were required to wear it under the chin, and women on the chest. Everyone knows about the difficulty that Jews faced in Soviet Russia, and of course about the Holocaust in Germany. People might even know about Spain, and if you're slightly more educated, you might be aware that the Jews were also expelled from England. But things like this, whether it was an expulsion or being singled out, has happened everywhere. And of course, dates all the way back to the enslavement in Egypt, which is what this week's Torah portion is all about. So now we'll get into this week's Torah portion. So for those of you who have never been here for a Torah portion episode, or for those of you where it's just been a while, when I talk about the weekly Parsha, what I'm talking about is, so there's the Torah, which is the five books of Moses. Within those five books, they are split into different portions, or in Hebrew, Parshas, Parshiot. And then each Parsha is then split further into chapters and verses. So that's why you can say, you know, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, which is actually where this week's Torah portion starts. So we are in the second book, we are in Exodus, and we are in the second portion of Exodus in the Parsha, or the portion of Va'era, which means I revealed myself. This is God speaking to Moses, and he is telling Moses that he revealed himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai, but not as Adonai, and now he is revealing himself as a different name. And the name of the Parsha, Va'era, Va'era is, it's like the 10th word in the portion, and that's how most of the portions are named. That's also how the books are named. It's just like the first distinct word, basically, within the line. It's a very creative naming process. So as always, I will turn to Chabad.org for a brief Parsha summary. God reveals himself to Moses, employing the four expressions of freedom, take out the children of Israel from Egypt, deliver them from their enslavement, redeem them, and acquire them as his own chosen people at Mount Sinai. He will then bring them to the land he promised to the patriarchs as their eternal heritage. Moses and Aaron repeatedly come before Pharaoh to demand in the name of God, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. Aaron's staff turns into a snake and swallows the magic sticks of the Egyptian sorcerers. God then sends a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. And the plagues are as follows. The waters of the Nile turn to blood. Swarms of frogs overrun the land. Lice infest all men and beasts. Hordes of wild animals invade the cities. A pestilence kills the domestic animals. Painful boils afflict the Egyptians, and for the seventh plague, fire and ice combined to descend from the skies as a devastating hail. Still, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the children of Israel go, as God had said to Moses. And for those of you who are counting, yes, indeed, that was only seven plagues, and there are indeed ten. The first seven are in this week's Parsha. You will have to tune in next week or skip ahead if you have a Bible at home or an internet connection to read about the final three plagues. So this is the beginning of the Israelites or the Jews' redemption from Egypt. And we always think of it as, and we celebrate it, as freedom from slavery, which it was. That is what the exodus and the redemption is about. But notice what Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh. They don't say, 
simply let my people go. What do they say? They say, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. The Lubavitcher Rebbe interprets this redemption that, yes, this was a physical redemption. We were slaves in Egypt, but the Exodus was actually primarily a spiritual redemption. What does it mean, a spiritual redemption? It means that we were freed to serve God without interference. And we needed physical freedom in order to do this. If you are a slave and you are being told when to work, when to sleep, when to eat, where to do all of those things, how to do all of those things, that leaves very little freedom for worshiping God. So we did need to be physically free in order to then have the spiritual freedom of worshiping God properly. But the primary goal of the redemption was not merely a physical freedom. It was a spiritual freedom because the question is, why are you free? Why are we free? If we weren't freed for the purpose of serving God, it was just let my people go. And then great, 10 plagues, people are brought out of Egypt, cross the Dead Sea, and they're in the desert. And then what? Now they set up their own cities, their own Egypt, and they enslave people in the future. They each pick up their own tents and travel their own way. Some end up in Mesopotamia and some end up in Canaan and whatever other ancient cities and countries existed. What was the point of being free? And what is currently the point of being free? We talk about freedom. We all want freedom. We all want liberty, liberty from the government telling us what to do, from our places of employment telling us what to do. But what's the purpose of having freedom? Is it just so that we can eat whatever we want, sleep whenever we want, buy whatever we want, do whatever we want whenever? Or is there a higher purpose to our freedom? And I think that's the argument. That's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe and many other commentators and the fact that in the Torah explicitly it is said, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Freedom is like pretty much anything else in this world. It is a thing, it is a tool, and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And if freedom leads us to a place of moral debauchery, then we have not used our freedom the way that God wants us to. But if we use our freedom to serve God, to make moral choices, to elevate the world spiritually, to make it more godly, to help other people, then we are using our freedom in a way that's that's good, that's correct, that's holy. It's up to us to decide how we act and what use we're going to make of the different tools that we have. So the essential thesis here is that physical freedom is necessary for spiritual freedom. Again, it, it's hard to worship properly if you don't have control over your day-to-day life. However, we are told that even in the midst of their enslavement, the Israelites kept two things that kept them distinct from the Egyptians. They kept their own manner of dress. Um, the Egyptians wore, it was, it's very hot in Egypt. It's still very hot in Egypt. So they wore linens, they were very loose, they were revealing, and we we're told that the Israelites still dressed in a way that was modest. And also that the Israelites kept their own names, that they weren't adopting Egyptian names. They were keeping with names that were more Jewish or more Semitic in, in origin, which is an indication to me that we are not completely slaves to our situation. A further proof of this is the fact that once the Jews were freed and were living in the desert under God, right? When they were in the desert for 40 years, their only sovereign was God. Moses was a teacher, but he was not the king. He was not the governor. He was a judge. But the Jews, that it was just God telling them what to do 
and how to live. And God was the only authority to which the people had to answer. So you would think, finally, an opportunity to have complete physical freedom and complete spiritual freedom. And even in the desert, the Jews sinned gravely with the golden calf. There's the sin of the 10 spies. The Israelites complained to Moses every day about everything. There were multiple rebellions. So we can see that even in what could be considered a completely perfect spiritual situation, the Israelites did not act perfectly. So those two things, the fact that the Jews didn't act perfectly in the desert, and the fact that they did retain some of their unique identity in Egypt, indicates to me, and should indicate, I think, to all of us, that we are not totally slaves to our situation. That situations, whether it's where we're born, our health, the amount of money we have, the country we live in, whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in may be a hindrance or a help to the kind of life we want to live. It is not the be-all, end-all. We can't blame our actions on our circumstances. We can rise above whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And we hear amazing stories about this all the time, right? The foster kid who graduates college at 19 and, you know, starts an organization that helps other foster kids, you know, and, and then of course there are the foster kids who end up as drug addicts. They were both foster kids. So people do have the opportunity to rise out of difficult circumstances. This was true then for the Israelites. It's true now for us. It was also true back then for the Egyptians. So in this Torah portion is when we get the very famous phrase, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We also hear it in next week's Torah portion, but we first hear it here, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, which I'll come back to in a second. But I want to talk about an insight that uh, Maimonides, who was a Jewish scholar, one of the greatest Jewish philosophers of the medieval period, and still is one of the greatest Jewish philosophers. He comments on the phrase, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he says this, quote, Pharaoh's heart was hardened as punishment for enslaving the Jewish people. But God had decreed that Jews would be enslaved. So why were the Egyptians punished for carrying out God's will? Because God decreed a nation would enslave the Israelites, but not which nation. Thus, each individual Egyptian had the choice of how to act. If he acted evilly, that was his own choice. Because it can seem harsh, right? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that all of these punishments were enacted against all of these Egyptians, especially because God did prophecy and did promise, weird promise, to the patriarchs that their descendants would be slaves. So it's like, is it really the Egyptians' fault? They were just carrying out God's will. But no one said that those Egyptians at that time would be the ones to do it. It could have been any time in any place, but they all collectively and individually made the immoral and evil choices that led to the Jews being enslaved, which then led to their punishment. That was so for the Egyptians, but it's also true for us, that even when God wills something, we have free choice, which, if you think about it, is incredible. Like, think what that means. God is the highest authority. He's the highest authority, period, end of story, right? And even if he wills something, we have free choice about it, which is incredible, but also in a way, super annoying, because that means we really can't blame what we do on anything. If we can't even blame our choices on God willing it, then we certainly can't blame our choices on, oh, well, 
this kid was mean to me in the 10th grade, so now I'm mean to other kids. Or, oh, well, I was born rich and my parents never had time for me, so now I'm a jerk. Or whatever the thing is that we blame things on, we can't. If we can't even blame it on God willing something, we certainly can't blame it on our petty, measly, earthly circumstances, which is not to say that we shouldn't have empathy for people who have very difficult earthly circumstances from which they have to rise. Some of us are really blessed that we don't have those same challenges, which make our moral choices much easier, which I assume is an indication that those other people are much stronger and God has more faith in their ability to rise up. Whereas those of us who have very easy circumstances, maybe God doesn't have as much faith in our ability to make the right choices. So he makes our lives a little bit easier. He's giving us a better chance to make the good choices. I'm not a theologian, really in the strictest sense. And none of us can say definitively why God does what he does. So I, I don't want to express that I don't have empathy for people who have a hard life and I can't, that I can't understand. But in a, in a greater moral sense, we all have the ability to make choices in our lives about how we act, which is really where that whole idea of not being able to say, oh, I was just taking orders comes from, right? After World War II, there was a new moral understanding world over that saying I was just following orders is not enough that there is a higher moral authority to which we all should be holding ourselves. Ideally, that moral authority should be God. I know some people don't believe in God and don't believe in his ultimate moral authority. So they find that ultimate moral authority in the Geneva Convention or in something else. Ideally, it should be God. But if that's not where you are right now, keep working on it, you'll get there. But that's the same thing, right? You can't say I was just following orders. I am just a victim of my circumstance. You are a human, we are people and we have the ability to make moral choices, no matter what our circumstance. Is it harder in some circumstances than others? Obviously, it's easy to not steal when you have a lot of food and a lot of money and you're not concerned about where your next meal is coming from. It's probably a lot harder to not steal when you're going hungry and you have kids at home going hungry, of course, but you still have the same option to do or not to do the right thing. And we can't blame, none of us can blame our circumstances or our situation for the choices we make. This is actually why Pharaoh's heart was hardened, coming back to that phrase. On a surface reading of the phrase Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it feels mean of God that he brings a plague upon the Egyptians. Pharaoh is about to let the Israelites go. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh says, never mind. Right? It seems like God is just making it harder for Pharaoh to do the right thing. He's about to let them go. Why doesn't he let them go? Now, there are plenty of interpretations on the phrase Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but I have always appreciated the interpretation that in fact, God was doing Pharaoh a favor by hardening his heart. Had God not hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh would have seen the Nile turn to blood, would have seen frogs overtaking the whole of Egypt, and he would have been extremely afraid and said, get out of here, take take your Israelites and go serve God. I don't want you here anymore. I'm, I'm too afraid. But what God did was he, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, meaning he he gave him strength. Not that he made him a cold person, 
but that he gave him strength to not act out of fear. God wanted Pharaoh to make the right choice. He wanted Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. God, even though the Egyptians may have deserved punishment, God does not relish punishing his creations. And we as Jews don't revel in it either at the Passover Seder. We pour out wine, pouring out for the homies, you know, even for the Egyptians. It's not for our homies. We pour it out for the Egyptians in recognition of the fact that the plagues were brutal and deadly, even if necessary. So God doesn't look forward to punishing his creations. He wanted Pharaoh to let the Jews go, but he wanted Pharaoh to make that choice. And if Pharaoh was acting out of fear, he wasn't, he wouldn't be making a choice. He would just be doing what felt right, what felt safe in the moment. It wasn't, it wouldn't be a moral choice. God wanted Pharaoh to make the moral choice to let people go because slavery is wrong. I think this is a great lesson for us not to act out of fear. We have, of course, seen over the last two years what happens when people act out of fear. People don't go to Christmas dinner with their families because they're afraid that some, that they might get a flu from their grandparents. So now grandkids haven't seen grandparents for two years, right? Or people haven't gone back to school. So kids are instead saying, staying home and not socializing and not learning because parents are afraid of kids getting sick or schools are afraid of teachers getting sick, whatever the reason for it is. And that's just the last two years, but people acting out of fear is nothing new. And sometimes it's a big fear that you don't want the Russian Communist Party coming after you, so you inform instead on your neighbor and your friend, right? That's acting out of fear. It could be a very small thing, like the typical elementary school TV show moment where the best friend doesn't stand up for the other friend against a bully because the one kid is afraid of being ostracized if the bully sees him standing up, but that's still acting out of fear. So there's big things like shutting down countries or informing on your neighbors, and there could just be small things like not standing up for your friend. But no matter what, acting out of fear is not does not lead to us making moral choices. And God, he gave us free will. He wants us to use it, just like he wants us to use our freedom, but he wants us to use it for the right things. He wants us to use our freedom to serve him and to make the world a more godly place, a place where he is welcomed. He gives us free will so that we make good choices, so that we make moral choices, so that we make the world a better place. All of us have been given our freedom, whether literally freedom from Egypt, freedom from other circumstances, or just the general freedom of being given life. We've all been given freedom to serve God in the wilderness, in the wilderness of life, in the wilderness of culture and the wilderness of a non-godly world, we have the freedom to serve God and to make the world a more godly place. And as it is about to be a new year and time for New Year's resolutions, in addition to eating healthier and losing weight and learning how to knit or whatever else is on your list, maybe we can all together resolve to make fewer choices or not to act out of fear and not to blame our circumstances for the things we do and the way we act, and to recognize and embrace the fact that, I mean, free will and freedom, yes, it can be a little scary because that's a lot of responsibility, but what an awesome, amazing responsibility it is that we, each of us individually, has the ability to make the world a more godly place, a better place, a kinder place, using whatever talents we may have, and that God gave us that ability, which means he trusts us. That's pretty cool. God, again, highest authority, literally ever, and he trusts little lowly us. That's pretty cool if you think about it that way. So I wish you all a very happy, healthy, 
new year and hopefully the coming year will be a little bit more positive for all of us. But I know it's something that we can all work on in our individual lives, making our new years more positive by not acting out of fear, not blaming our circumstances for the way we act, and of course, always treating others a little kinder than necessary. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at epluribusunumpodcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 1 in C Major, known as the Waterfall Etude.